0: I wanted to uh, speak tonight about many things. We'll see how many I get through. The um, first is this sense of, of aspiration, of harnessing our imagination, our sense of daring, our boldness, and setting a, a course, setting a sense of aspiration. That is is very large. Aspiration isn't considered the same thing in Buddhist teaching as desire or craving or grasping or uh, holding on. It's considered something quite positive to have a sense of the possible. There's a new car, by the way, called Crave. I don't know if you've seen ads for it. I quite uh, like driving down the West Side Highway in New York City because there are these huge billboards that just say Crave. <laughs> and I think, oh, isn't that interesting? Well, aspiration is not Crave, neither the car nor the quality. Sometimes I talk, I'm sure many of you have heard me tell the story about when we first moved into the building here, or when we first came to see it, actually, which was some months before. It was uh, December 1975, and uh, some of us came here. We'd been looking for a facility for a retreat center for, for some months, and all up and down the East Coast, and Finally, somebody suggested we look at this place in Barry, Massachusetts. So we came here, and we couldn't really decide what to do. We felt really overwhelmed by just the size of it. We hadn't been back in America all that long. It wasn't at all clear to us how many people would be interested in doing this kind of meditation, or any meditation for that matter. These, of course, were the days where... If I was in some social situation and somebody said to me, What do you do? and I'd say, I teach meditation, they would sort of sidle away. <laughs> like, Oh, that's weird, isn't it? But on the other hand, it seemed as it is just an absolutely perfect place for a retreat center. It's, you know, what it is. It's so quiet and placid. And And so on. So we couldn't decide what to do. Um, And what we did do was go to lunch in downtown Barry. Uh, Those of you who came up that way know that it's quite a traditional New England town with a town green in the middle of it. And in those days, there was a monument on the town green which had the Barry town motto engraved on it, which turned out to be tranquil and alert." so we took a look at that and we said, there's an omen. We're going to do it. And so we bought it. Now the um, main part of the building just behind me was originally built as a mansion. It was a private home built by someone named Colonel Gaston who at one point was the lieutenant governor of Massachusetts and all those other wings got added later on as the, as the building went through different incarnations but um, I think the yoga room was the billiards room and the walking room behind me was the ballroom and um, it was his home so uh, one day somebody was giving a talk here and they had found this book in the the Barry Library, which was the history of the town of Barry. And it turned out that Colonel Gaston himself also had a motto, which was you should live every day so you can look any damn man in the eye and tell him to go to hell. <laughs> so when I heard that, my first thought was I wonder how well he got along with his neighbors, you know, who were. <laughs> perhaps going around trying to be tranquil and alert. (laughs) Um, But I often tell those two stories in juxtaposition because I think we so often have a motto we are living by, consciously or unconsciously. There is something that is encapsulating or expressing our sense of what our lives are about, who we are, what we're capable of, what our limitations are, where happiness is to be found, there is something. Sometimes it's more in the direction of tranquil and alert. Sometimes it's more in the direction of you should live every day so you can look any damn man in the eye and tell him to go to hell. But there's something And in some way, that could be seen as our aspiration. And one of the things that happens in the course of meditation practice or the course of of this kind of inner journey is that we find out what that motto is that may have been guiding us and may guide us still. And we also learn its transparency. We learn its constructed nature that it's not unyielding, it's not permanent. It can be moved, it can be opened, it can be enlarged, it can be expanded. We can dare to imagine living and dying from a different place. And so we, we find that there are times in our practice where we come upon some sense of definition, of limitation, and we learn to loosen the grip of that. I was once um, practicing with a Tibetan teacher named Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche, and he he said something to us uh, which was very important for me. It was something like, and this is of course, a paraphrase, it was something like, why is your sense of aspiration so small? Why is it so meager? Why not aspire to be a fully liberated being for the sake of all beings? Why not? And that why not became a, a kind of prod in his teachings. Why not? Why do we dare to imagine so little in terms of what we are capable of. Why not open? Why not dedicate one's life to be free for the sake of all, to be a completely liberated being for the sake of everybody? So that's one whole side of our practice, to open, to get bolder. I think in in some ways, in some funny way, even though we live in a time of great craving and greed, we also live in a time of quite blunted aspiration. You know, there isn't so much of a a sense of, of daring and imagination of who we can become, how we might impact this world. And so we open. We're continually opening to a new sense of possibility. The other side of that is putting in the time or making the effort, having the patience, that is all a very real component of having our dreams come true. It's not a question of making a decision. Yes, I think I'd rather like to be a fully liberated being for the sake of all beings. (laughs) And then watching the clock, you know, or... (laughs) Um, kind of imagining that lovely day when it is to be. But even holding that aspiration in our hearts, being patient, doing our work, whatever that is, step by step, moment by moment, being able to make mistakes, to begin again, to love ourselves anyway, to not feel that we failed, but to kind of regroup, to come back, to let things unfold. It's like allowing the seasons to unfold. Really, our impatience isn't going to make it happen any faster. We need a kind of balance to understand that the the movement of one's heart, the unfolding of a spiritual life is also full of mystery. It's not so linear. It's not not, um, so cut and dried. It's not a question of accumulation the way so much of our life might be cast in terms of. You know, it's easy to think, well, you know, yesterday I could do five phrases before my mind wandered and today I'll, do eight, and tomorrow I'll do 50, you know, and then before you know it, my mind will never wander, and we sort of wait and wait, and <laughs> it may not be like that, or there are those many, many times, some of which I, you know, I described in my own experience, where we may, we may do a practice of loving kindness and not feel the fullness of forgiveness, or great love for ourselves and think nothing is happening, only to perhaps look back later and to be able to say, oh, yeah, something was happening, or that in some funny way formed the foundation for a very genuine compassion in this real-life situation, even though at the time it seemed like nothing to let go of the grip of so many demands and the impatience and needing things to be a certain way. I'm sure many of you have also heard me talk about um, these two uh, letters that arrived here within the first month that we had moved into the building. The first instead of being addressed to the Insight Meditation Society, was addressed to the Instant Meditation (laughs) Society. I used to really love that envelope. I used to look at that envelope and think, what were they thinking, you know? But of course, it is how we are trained to be, that anything good, anything worthwhile, anything important will happen instantly. And if it's not, This kind of immediate manifestation. It's worthless, and we're worthless, and we can't do it. The second, which has been my favorite for a good long time now, um, instead of being addressed to the Insight Meditation Society, was addressed to the Hindsight Meditation Society. (laughs) And that I really, really loved. When we had our 30th anniversary just this last year, Um, we had an opportunity for the people on staff to suggest different slogans for T-shirts, of course. I wanted the T-shirt that said Hindsight Meditation Society 30 (laughs) years, but somehow it didn't happen. Um, But really, there's tremendous truth in that. You think about perhaps the many times in your life, as I would say, about my own practice, my own meditation practice, where I thought nothing was happening. And it's only been when I've been able to look back that I could say, oh, wow, look at that. Or those many times in life when I've tried to be of service or help somebody or make a difference, and it felt like this is going nowhere. And when I'm lucky to be able to look back and hear, oh, yeah, that planted a seed that did this and this and that, maybe even in ways that were very hard to trace but were influential, that spread out, that made a difference somewhere, in some way. There's a lot of mystery in this kind of unfolding, and we need to have a, a kind of letting go. It doesn't mean not caring, but allowing our efforts, internal and, and external, to unfold in these ways because we cannot control them. Probably one of my favorite images from the teachings um, is about something that brings these two together, the sense of aspiration and the sense of surrender or patience. And like many illustrations, it's very, very simple, but it's it means something. Uh, and that is when the Buddha said, Your mind will get filled with qualities like mindfulness or loving kindness moment by moment. The way a bucket will get filled with water drop by drop. Your mind will get filled with qualities like loving kindness and mindfulness moment by moment. The way a bucket will get filled with water drop by drop. And from the first time I heard it, I really liked it because right away I can imagine myself standing by the bucket doing one of two things. One was looking in the bucket and thinking, isn't it going to be great when it's filled and I'm fully enlightened, floating down the streets of New York in my white sari with a beatific smile on my face and just not bothering to add the next drop, which means using this moment this moment's experience, whatever it is, as a vehicle for greater mindfulness and love. Or, of course, I could imagine myself standing by the bucket and looking in and thinking, ooh, kind of empty in there. (laughs) That'll never get filled. And once again, perhaps not bothering to add the very next drop. Just like being... um, defeated in a prior way right from the start. And since that time when I first heard that image and imagined myself in those two situations someone has offered a third which was also very good which was standing there and completely ignoring my own bucket and kind of peering into someone else's and saying (laughs) oh how are you doing over there? You know that's kind of interesting not so good today, huh? You know, or oh, it's pretty full. Isn't it amazing? And yet, we have we have this life, this moment. How precious and we can use it. Painful, pleasant, neutral, whatever it is. It is an opportunity for us to be relating to this experience with awareness, with mindfulness, with clarity, with loving-kindness. Just as we say, mindfulness does not take the shape of what it's watching. It's not beaten down by dire experience. It's not that it can't accompany us or support us through very hard times. So too is the truth of love or loving-kindness. If it's a matter of an exchange, if it's a matter of conditionality, then of course it will come and go like the wind as circumstances change, as things arise that are very difficult to bear, as we face uncertainty as we make a mistake. One of my uh, greatest examples of holding the sense of tremendous aspiration and also having that gentleness of patience, of allowing things to take their time, of being able to begin again or add the very next drop once we realize that perhaps it's been some time since we've done so, is the Dalai Lama. And I can remember a time it was it was quite a few years ago, somewhere in the '90s. And um, he was teaching in Tucson on uh, patience. And the way that the the event was structured was that he would teach in the morning and the afternoon, and then they decided they wanted different Western meditation teachers to teach in the evening. So I actually I and Sylvia Borstein. Um, were set to do the very first evening, and I was pretty nervous at that time. That was by far the largest group I'd ever spoken in front of. It was about twelve hundred people, and even though he wasn't there on the stage, um, the throne was right behind me. You know, it was kind of like this presence and. But I got through it, and it was done. And then I was so glad it was the first night, because then I could just enjoy the rest of the conference you know, and and the teaching. So that was over with. And then a couple of days later, um, the Dalai Lama was teaching. And the way he had been doing it was that he would be referring to this text, and he would read it and then make a comment for whatever length of time. And then as that was being translated, he would just flip forward to see um, the next passage that he would would be about to comment on. So he had done that, but something in what the translator was saying caught his attention. And he looked over and he said, that's not what I said. And the translator said, yes, it is. (laughs) And he said, no, it's not. And the translator said, yes, it is. (laughs) And it was a very minor point, actually, that they were discussing. Um, But they they couldn't agree. And they were going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And finally, the Dalai Lama flipped back to the passage that was actually in dispute. And he burst out in this huge laugh. And he said, oh, ha, 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 I made a mistake. (laughs) And I thought, look at that, you know. What if I'd made a mistake in front of those same 1,200 people a few nights before? First of all, would I have admitted it? (laughs) Second of all, would I have laughed about it? Probably not. (laughs) You know, and it was such a beautiful example of not holding this kind of rigid persona or inflated sense of oneself. In fact, the kind of compassion, the tenderness to have some sense of ease about that admission, oh yeah, I made a mistake. And then to go on. That in itself was a very beautiful example. And just recently, um, fairly recently, much more recently than Tucson, I was in Toronto, um, where the Dalai Lama was doing 11 days of the Kala Chakra um, ritual, which is a very extensive ritual. And... um, he liked to begin uh, the, the teaching session in a kind of ecumenical spirit by having different people do chanting, um, primarily from different Buddhist schools. And one day there was a rabbi up there was very interesting, but it was mostly from different Buddhist schools in chronological order, in the order in which Buddhism spread throughout the world. So um, he would start with the Theravadan tradition, which is this tradition, Burmese, Thai, Sri Lankan, and then you know, move on. And, and there were people there representing you know Korea and China and all these different places. And um, the first day, there was a Western monk and a Western nun, both of whom had ordained in the Thai tradition. And so they were chanting, you know i was very familiar with the chants you know it wasn't exactly what we're doing each night but it was in the same school so um and then the next day for some reason as as uh, it was time to do that again the monk wasn't there there was just the nun who had to get up this time it was like 7000 people with the dalai lama there right behind her and chant um these chants and it was so painful in some ways. You know, her voice was quivering. And I, you know, having uh, known the chance for so long, knew she was making all these mistakes, you know, and the things you're supposed to say three times, she was saying once, and, you know, and it was finally done. Um, and then they went on through these different countries. And then at the end, the Dalai Lama said, you know, I'd like to take a moment and, thank everyone who chanted, especially that nun. He said, it's not so easy to chant all by yourself. And, and she did a really beautiful job. And then he said, I once had to chant all by myself. I was in, I think it was Japan, something like that. He said, I went to Japan, and they asked me to chant the Heart Sutra. And he said, I made so many mistakes. It was like I made up a new Heart Sutra. <laughs> And it was such a beautiful moment, you know, of, of commonality and humanity. And then uh, she came up to me later in the afternoon, and she was so lit up. It was like she was radiant. Her radiance could have, like, filled that, that auditorium. And she said to me, do you want to chant with me tomorrow? <laughs> and I said, no, thank you. <laughs> it's all right. but how amazing, you know. I made a mistake. I did the best I could. I put my heart into it. Really, can we approach our experience not with this idea of holding an aspiration as something to judge ourselves by and to somehow have a, a rigid expectation of what our experience should be? But to hold us, to lift us up, to inspire us, to allow us to begin again, and to have enough patience, enough uh, gentleness to understand that's reality. That is how we move. That is how we transform. That is how we change. The Buddha talked about transformation as being like an ocean floor, gradually sloping away. And that's not to say it takes you know 10 years or 10 lifetimes. We don't know. But there is that sense of allowing, of realizing that we're not in control of the unfolding of events, that if we put our heart completely into a sense of possibility, in some ways that's actually one of the hardest things, then we just need to do the work. And it will happen. It does happen in its own time and in its own way. So our practice is to dare to imagine a heart that is expressive of loving kindness and compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. They will all support one another, moment by moment, step by step. As we leave them, as we forget, Sometimes we we do that almost intentionally, and then we come back. It is said that the practice of loving-kindness transforms our field of intention, our field of motivation. Intention or motivation is considered to be quite crucial in Buddhist teaching because that's where the energy of an action resides. That's where it lives. Classically, we would say that's where the karmic seed gets planted, is with the intention. And this is a very different way of looking at things than perhaps we've been trained to. The intention is the motivation, it's the heart space, it's um, the uh, impulse generation that sparks an action. So... We really look at the intention, at our own intention, to try to discern what kind of action it is. Is it really an act of generosity? Maybe not. Maybe the giving is um, substantial, but maybe the heart space that's motivating it is fear. Fear you know, or dread or competition or martyrdom, you know, feeling we don't deserve to have anything. So we give it away. So from the perspective of the teaching, that would not be generosity because it's not coming from that impulse to share or it would be a certain kind or level of generosity. But the energy of it is not really the same as that movement to simply give. So we look to see what our intention is when we're about to do or say something because that's the aliveness of the action. And then we do or say something perhaps to the the best of our ability in a skillful, sensitive, aware fashion, mindful of the context in which we find ourselves doing the best that we can. This is a place, um, this aspect is like our best guess of the most appropriate, most skillful way to do something. And I just want to distinguish those two for a moment because I think this is very important in the, in the teaching of loving kindness. As I said, the... Um, The teaching is that a practice of loving kindness will transform our field of motivation. So if, for example, in general we have been coming from a place of fear and we do a practice like this, in general we will be coming from a place of connection or care, not with great deliberation, not studied, not self-conscious, but we have changed that kind of arena of what sparks our action. And so it's coming from a different place. But having done that or being in the process of doing that doesn't determine what we'll do or what we'll say. That is actually dependent on our discernment, our understanding, our mindfulness, our wisdom, our best guess of what is most skillful in any situation. And I think those are quite important to distinguish because many times when they're conflated people get kind of squeamish and they think well you know if I were to develop a loving heart I could only smile or invite everyone home with me or give away everything I have or you know not stand up for myself or not try to protect this other person or you know not do this or not do that and so the image people get is of a, a loving heart leading to a, a very kind of narrow range of possible activity or, or manifestation and life seems really small and often kind of um, ineffectual or not authentic. But If we understand this model, we understand that those two aspects, the intention or the motivation and the the way we act, the skillfulness or unskillfulness with which we act, are really two different things, although obviously connected. We may be coming from a genuinely, truly loving, generous, caring, compassionate place and our best sense of what's most appropriate in a particular situation might be pretty intense. You know, it might be very strong, really fierce. That's our best sense of how we should be, what might be the best alternative in that moment. And so I think, or I describe sometimes, um, when... Uh, Ramdas's teacher, Neem Kurali Baba, was very famous um, in India, as an Indian saint, for having said, Never throw anyone out of your heart. Never throw anyone out of your heart. And my friend Sylvia Borstein has a kind of addendum to that, which she uses, where she says, Never throw anyone out of your heart. You may throw them out of your life but never throw them out of your heart. And we have to think about that too. Growing in skill, learning how to be, feeling free by the force of our our loving kindness to examine options and not constrained to a certain um, particular narrow range of response, we practice loving kindness. We practice compassion. We practice sympathetic joy, and they change that field of of intention. They change it in a way that, as I said, it's not um, it's not self conscious. We see others as having something to do with us, with our lives. And from that place, we respond to the best of our ability. People often ask, you know, well, what should I do in this situation or that situation or that situation or that problem or that dilemma? And the answer, honestly, is always I don't know. (laughs) You know, you have to really look. You have to look at where you're coming from, what is motivating you, what do you really want in this situation, what is your aspiration? Do you want to be free or do you want to be seen as victorious? Do you want to be loving or do you want to kind of hold someone down? You can know through cultivating awareness and you have to do the best you can to act as skillfully as you can. So what I was saying before is that sometimes we, we see a direction and we actually don't even want to go there. But if we are mindful, we have a choice. Loving kindness, as I was saying just now, is primarily taught as a means to transform our own field of intention. It's also taught in traditional cultures like Burma, where I first practiced. Um, It's taught as, uh, it's like an energy. It's a force field. It's not considered that it's just for our own transformation that it's practiced, although that is primarily where the change happens, but also that it is like an energy that goes out into the world, and here we have to be very careful not to um, just fall into our normal pattern of wanting to be in control and craving and clinging and feeling well. If my, met, you know, my meta practice was really cooking, you know, they would be healed. Or, you know, and the fact that they are not means I failed. Or, you know, I want you to get better by tomorrow, and and all the the ways that we can fall into those old habits. We really need the kind of equanimity that Gina was talking about as the bottom line. To say that loving kindness is like a force is not to say that um, we can control everything in the world and make things just so. So there I was practicing in Burma in this very traditional context. And my teacher, Saira Upandita, um, said, as one does, you know, we've talked about this before, to turn my attention toward the good in someone, especially someone I didn't like, to see if I could find one little bit of good. And sometimes we can't, you know, but... The task was to see if I could. Um, and then to offer them loving kindness, which, of course, we're going to move on to tomorrow. Now, there's a lot to be said about that as well. You know, Offering somebody difficult loving kindness does not mean we're saying, you know, may you be triumphant in your terrible actions and hurt ever more people. Um, it's also not saying what you did doesn't matter. Maybe it matters hugely. Um, But it's rather forging a kind of connection that is not defined by our hurt and our fear. So I went back to my room, and I thought of somebody I found difficult right away. And... I mean, there I was, so I started sending them loving kindness, and then I thought, wait a minute, you know, what if my practice gets really strong, and my concentration really starts cooking, and I'm blasting them with this energy of of loving kindness, and they start to feel better. I don't want them to feel better. You know, they're my difficult person, and you know, I'm in Burma, it's like 120 degrees, and the food is horrible, and everyone's getting sick, and they're bugs and they're mosquitoes. Like, why should I be in Burma so that they should feel better? <laughs> you know. And I then thought of another person I found somewhat difficult, and my mind had the the same objection. I thought, I'm in Burma. It's horrible here. But finally, I just had to laugh. And those are the moments. It's not punitive. It's not full of self-hatred. It's asking oneself, what do I really want more than anything? What is my aspiration in this moment? Do I want to be free of that kind of constant obsession with their state of being? Or... I want to enjoy going over their list of faults one more time. (laughs) What do we want? It's up to us. You see the impulse to go in a certain direction, and we have the choice. It's an amazing thing. It's a miraculous thing. Because we can know and we can decide. All of this needs to be done with great intelligence and wisdom to understand what does it mean? to have loving kindness for someone. And what doesn't it mean? In terms of the Buddhist psychology, you know, we have the the list of the four Brahma Viharas with their near enemies and their far enemies. The far enemy is clearly the opposite state. You would never confuse it. The near enemy is close enough so that It might easily get confused, but it's really very, very different. The far enemy of loving kindness is aversion, which is anger and fear, which in the Buddhist psychology are the same state, actually, anger and fear. One is the anger is the outflowing, expressive, energized form. The fear is the frozen, held-in, imploding form. Of striking out against what's happening, just wanting to declare it to be untrue. So that's the far enemy of loving kindness. And they say, you know, of course, traditionally that the Buddha taught loving kindness as the antidote to fear. And then the near enemy is attachment, it's impatience, wanting. It's close, but it's different. Sometimes, in trying to understand attachment, I actually do substitute the word control because I think it helps take it out of some of the kind of confusion that the word attachment itself can give us. Where um, we think, well, of course, we need to attach or we die, you know, we need to bond, we need uh, to have that kind of caring, intimate relationship but it doesn't mean that. You know, it it really, the word attachment means that superimposition, that defiance of how things are, refusing to see change, refusing to allow the movement, the flow, the transitory nature of life. So of course we suffer. So I think of it very much as that, that sense of wanting to assume control to be attached, to grasp. That's where the Buddha said, to hold on very tightly to that which must inevitably change is like holding on tightly to a revolving wheel. At some point or another in the cycle, you are bound to get run over. And isn't it that we do that again and again? So the near enemy of loving kindness is attachment. It's really close, but it's very, very different. We have compassion, the trembling or the quivering of the heart in response to seeing pain or suffering, the far enemy's cruelty. It's seeing the suffering of someone's genuine or imagined position, you know, experience, and wishing the suffering to extend, to deepen, to grow. Very often it comes from a complete sense of disconnect. People do all kinds of things to others because of that kind of disconnection. The other, this is the root of abuse, this is the root of real harm. It's not sensing that this other being is a feeling, living, breathing being who wants to be happy just as we do, that it hurts when certain actions are done. So it's cruelty. It's clearly the opposite of compassion. It's almost like dehumanizing or dismissing somebody's uh, vibrant, alive, vulnerable life. So completely that, just like anything, can be done, and it feels like it doesn't matter. And then the near enemy of, of compassion is that state that we've talked about before of kind of devastation or being overcome by suffering so that there's nothing left, really. There's no energy in that moment to try to make a difference or even just to be present for somebody else. That's the near enemy. It's close to compassion. But we can also see the difference some years ago the dalai lama um was in new york city uh teaching in central park and um he began his talk with a rather startling statement he said you know from a certain point of view i haven't had such an easy life he said i've had i had to assume power when i was 16 um I had to flee into exile in my early 20s. I've had to try to keep um, this culture intact. I've had to hear uh, continually about the the terrible suffering inside of Tibet. He said, it hasn't been such an easy life. And then he said, but I'm pretty happy. (laughs) And, of course, that's what one sees in him. You know, he doesn't seem so morose. He seems pretty happy. (gasps) And he went on to say, the reason that I'm pretty happy is because of the force of compassion. He said, compassion makes me feel at one with everyone. Or as he has said, which I'm sure we've quoted before, I've never met anyone I consider a stranger. So imagine coming into this room and having that sense of interest, of care, of being at home with everybody, rather than what we usually do, which is, what do they think of me? Do they like me? How much do they like me? Oh, no, I said something really stupid. They hate me. I don't know if I can recover. Maybe I better leave, you know? The freedom and the openness, the connection, is its own kind of happiness. I mean, what joy to be that undefended and that unafraid and not so consumed with oneself all of the time, even though we are also opening to the pain, to the suffering, to the vulnerability we all have. Compassion is its own kind of happiness. It's not really the same as its near enemy, where our own fatigue and exhaustion and devastation and dismay at seeing someone else's state, once again, take center stage. It's more important than their state for us. Then there's sympathetic joy, really taking delight and happiness in the happiness of others. Not having so much of that sense of... It's funny, you know, because there are certain situations, of course, where we are in direct competition With others, you know, if someone else gets the grant, it's not going to come to us. But an awful lot of the time, it's not like that. But we live as though it were. We have that feeling that, um, damn, you know, if only your book hadn't gotten on the New York Times bestseller list, inevitably mine would have. It's like it was floating around in the air, and because it landed on yours, it's not going to land on mine, whereas really, of course, there's no connection whatsoever between the two. And so I used that example last year when I was teaching here, you know, like, of you know, waking up one Sunday morning in... New York City and opening up the New York Times to look at the book review section and there's your friend's book on the New York Times bestseller list and you think, it would have been mine if it hadn't been theirs. (laughs) And by the sheerest of strange coincidences, I had three friends in this room, all of whom had had books on the New York Times bestseller list (laughs) and they all came up to me afterwards and said, were you talking about me? (laughs) Is that how you felt about my book? And I said, no, of course not, (laughs) which was mostly true. (laughs) But, I mean, isn't it crazy, you know, as though the New York Times was sort of just in the neighborhood and, you know, felt, oh, well, I'll do that instead of that. But that's how we are. So that kind of jealousy, um, envy is the, is the far enemy of sympathetic joy. It's being hurt or feeling hurt um, in some way at other people's happiness or success or good fortune. And then the near enemy I've seen described in different ways. Sometimes it's um, described as giddiness. It's like being happy but not because of... Seeing someone else's happiness, is like being happy for no good reason, and that one never was too impactful for me. A more interesting to me way of seeing it, um, has been a state of comparing, where we are not looking to someone else's success or good fortune for the sake of being happy for them, but more that kind of incessant restless looking and looking and looking and looking. Who am I? How am I in reference to you? It's like almost like not knowing who we are except in reference, in comparing. And uh, One of the things that's interesting in the Buddhist psychology is that that state of comparing is considered unwholesome or unskillful no matter what conclusion we draw in the looking. We may look at somebody and feel we're better than they are or less than they are or even equal to. And it's still unwholesome or unskillful because it's the way we look. And it's the endlessness of it and the restlessness, the seeking, the agitation of it. You know, so sometimes we use the example here of um, you know, it's hard to say how someone else is doing in their practice. So but because we really want to know, even though there's no way to know, we make up these criteria that are really completely artificial, you know, like how still are they sitting? You know, so maybe you're sitting in in the middle of a meditation session and somebody near you moves and you think, oh, good. (laughs) You know, I'm a much better meditator than they are because, you know, they moved after only 20 minutes and here I am so still, you know, I'm much better than they are. But then you think, wait a minute. They were actually in here when I came in from the walking. You know, what if they did the sitting and they sat all the way through the walking and got through 20 minutes of yet another sitting? They're much better than I am. Oh, no. You know, and it's just like endless, 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 based on nothing. It's not even true, you know, that it means something. And so that state of comparing... Could be seen as the the near enemy of sympathetic joy, where we're looking, but not for the development of happiness in others' happiness. And then uh, finally, there is equanimity, which is balance of mind. It's the articulation of wisdom, of insight, of seeing the vicissitudes, as Gina described them, seeing things as they are, and the peace really that comes i seeing the truth. It's not always a pleasant truth, but there is peace in knowing it. Being in harmony with how things actually are. That's the kind of balance. So the opposite of that is the reaction of grasping and aversion, of holding on and pushing away, both of which are, are quite in defiance of how things are. And the near enemy is indifference. It's close, but it's really, really different. Equanimity is not indifference, which can be a a pulling away. It can be a sullen sort of hostility, very subtle. Um, It can be cold. It can be withdrawn. Equanimity is different. It's balance. It's really being present with what is with wisdom, with insight, and with peace. So this is actually our practice. It's moment after moment, drop after drop, both holding the aspiration, really a tremendous sense of the possible, and doing the work very patiently, very uh, diligently. That needs to be done to make it real. So let's sit together for a few moments.